Well, hey, welcome to Center Church. Whether you are in person or online, I'm really, really glad that you're here. One of the things that you should know about us as a church is that we are passionate about seeing lives changed by the gospel. That is our mission, to see lives changed by the gospel. And one of the clearest indicators that that has happened is when someone is baptized, when someone goes public with their faith through baptism. So back at the beginning of the year, we set a pretty audacious goal as a church. We said, God, we want to baptize twice as many people in 2020 as we did in 2019, and things were going so well. And then COVID hit, right? And for 23 weeks, we were online only, and I thought, oh man, we're never going to hit our goal. But as of two weeks ago at our baptism service, I'm here to tell you that we not only met our goal, but we exceeded our baptism goal for this year. And I think that's something we should clap for. We have baptized 18 different people this year, and we have two more that are scheduled to happen in January. And I don't share that to say, look at how awesome we are, but to say, look at how awesome God is. That God has still been at work in our church, and God is still at work in your life, even in the midst of all the obstacles that we face right now. So I just want to pray as we start and thank God for that and ask him to do even more in 2021 than he has done in 2020. So would you just pray with me? God, we praise you for the work that you've done this past year in and through our lives, even in the midst of very challenging circumstances. And God, we just pray that you would do even more that we could ask or imagine in 2021, that we would see more people changed by your gospel and more people come to love and to cherish Christ. So God, we love you. We trust you. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, over the last two weeks, we have been looking at the fundamental connection between your spiritual life and how you think about money. And we've looked at Jesus's two most famous teachings about money, and we've learned, number one, that your heart will follow your treasure, and number two, that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. And we've learned that if we want to love God more this holiday season, we have to invest more of our money in the kingdom and less in products. But here's the thing, that is very, very difficult to do. And that's difficult to do partly because companies like Amazon and Target will spend $3.7 billion in advertising over the next 30 days. $3.7 billion. That is $8.2 million a day on your phone, on your TV, through your Spotify account, in your email, through mailers, convincing you to spend your money to acquire products, trying to tie your heart to this world. What that means is that if you and I don't have really good practical tools for living out what Jesus has taught us, we will get washed away in a flood of materialism just like we did last Christmas and the Christmas before that. But the good news is that the Bible is not just theological, the Bible is also practical. And God has something to say, not just to our heads, but also to our hearts and to our hands when it comes to money. And in the Bible, God has given us two very practical tools, two gifts to help us treasure him more and treasure this world less. And so what we're going to do today is I'm going to show you those two tools so that you and I might live differently this holiday season. And the first tool that we find is called First Fruits. And we're going to look at the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 9. Yes, the book of Leviticus. You're like, is that in the Bible? Yes, it's in the Old Testament. Okay, so as you're finding that in your Bible or turning to it on your phone, let me give you the background. God's people had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years when God raised up Moses and through Moses delivered his people out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan. Now the land of Canaan was the land that God had promised to give to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And the land of Canaan was referred to as flowing with milk and honey. And what that means is that the land was very fertile. So think of a place like Iowa, okay, where anything you plant in the ground is going to grow. Like the soil in Iowa is so dark, it's ridiculous, okay? So that was the land of Canaan. Well, the Israelites were an agrarian people. And so here's what this meant practically. For the very first time, the average Israelite was about to have money. 
For the very first time, the average Israelite was about to have money. They were going to go into the land, plant things. It was going to grow. They were going to have a great harvest. And so before they got into the land, God gave them a tool because he knows the impact that money has on the human heart. So to teach his people about money, to teach his people how to treasure him, God gave them this tool called first fruits. Look at verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, this was as they were going through the wilderness towards Canaan, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. So the, agra- the, the Israelites were agrarian, so they didn't get paid 26 times a year. They got paid once during harvest. All of their income came in in a period of three to four weeks when they harvested their crops. And what God told them to do is the very first fruit that you harvest, the very first thing that you bring in, I want you to take it and offer it to me with the priest. Before anything else comes in, I want you to take those first fruits and I want you to give it to the priest to, to, and offer it to me. And this was called first fruits. And as we look at the practice of first fruits, we're supposed to learn a couple of things. I'll give you four from this passage. First, God gave the Israelites the land, right? I mean, that's what it says in the text, the land that I give you. If it weren't for God, the Israelites would still be in Egypt with nothing. So what first fruits reminds us of is that everything we have comes from the Lord. Everything that we have comes from the Lord. Second, God gave the Israelites a rich land, right? When they brought that harvest in, it was large. They didn't have to work all that hard to have a bountiful harvest. And first fruits is a reminder to us that God has blessed us with an enormous amount. Third, God gave the Israelites a command. He said, you shall bring in the first fruits. He didn't say you should consider bringing in the first fruits, right? And practicing fruit, first fruits reminds us that, hey, this is a matter of obedience, not personal preference. This wasn't just something that some of the Israelites who were very generous did. This was commanded of every Israelite, no matter where they were on the economic ladder. Finally, God gave the Israelites a destination for their giving. Their first fruits were to be brought to the priest. Well, why the priest? Because the priest was God's appointed instrument in society. So as they offered it to the priest, it was as though they were offering it to God. So first fruits teaches us that we are not free to determine the location of our giving, but that God calls us to give to him through a specified means. Hear me, the Israelites had taxes. They had taxes. They had families to feed. They had various bills to pay, and many of them had debt to eliminate. But before they addressed any of those things, God called them to give the very first part of their income to him. The question is, why? Why? Because God was teaching them to trust him for their provision rather than themselves. It's one thing to say, God provides for me. It's another thing to demonstrate that each month by giving your first and your best to God. There's a story that really rocked me about the importance of first fruits in the Bible. It's the story of Cain and Abel. So Cain and Abel were the two sons of Adam and Eve, and both of them made an offering to God, but there was a really, really big difference. Abel gave the firstborn of his flock. That's what it says in Genesis 4, his first fruits. Before any other animals were born, before he had any idea if he would have any other animals, he took his very firstborn and he offered it to God. What if no other animals were born? Well, he trusted God with that. He gave his first fruits. Cain, on the other hand, gave after his crop came in. He only gave after he saw what he had and if he had enough, and only then did he give to God. You see, Abel gave his first and his best. Cain gave his last and his leftovers. Abel gave his first and his best. Cain gave his last and his leftovers. And God was pleased with Abel's offering, but not with Cain's offering. Why? Because Abel's offering demonstrated that God was important and the priority in his life. 
But Cain's offering demonstrated that God was not important and that God was simply a leftover in his. Let me ask you, which represents your approach to giving? Is your giving more like Abel or is your giving more like Cain? We don't live in an agrarian society today. I doubt that many of you are farmers, but the principle of first fruits is still relevant because here's what we know. Everyone gives their first fruits to something. Everyone gives their first fruits to something. You give your first and your best to something, and our first fruits show what we value most. For example, if the first fruits of your paycheck go to enhancing your lifestyle, then comfort and status are what you value most. If the first fruits of your paycheck go to savings and to investments, then financial security is what you value most. If the first fruits of your paycheck go to debt elimination, then financial freedom is what you value most. Everyone gives their first fruits to something, and what we give our first fruits to show what matters most in our lives. And I know we get really defensive about that with money, and you're like, no, that's not what it means, but like, let's go to a different environment. Let's talk about relationships. We know this is true. How do you know that you are someone's close friend? Because they give you their first and their best, right? They respond to your text messages. They give you time. They give you energy, right? You know what it feels like to be the fourth or fifth on the list, don't you? You're like, it takes you six days to respond to my text messages, right? Like, we just understand this. Somebody just elbowed his friend. Like, we, we get this, right? When you are a priority in someone's life, as a friend, they text you back. They check in on you. They want to spend time with you. And when you're not, they don't. Right? Or think about it in the, in the realm of romance. Right? So imagine I said to, to my wife, Meredith, I said, Meredith, I love you. You're important to me. You know, after God, you are the most important thing in my life. And I want to show you that by taking you out on dates. And so I, I want to take you out on three dates this year, babe. Or this year, this month. That'd be bad. This month, right? You're so important to me. I want to take you out on three dates this month. Well, that is, if I don't spend our date money on eating out or on Amazon or on impulsive shopping at Costco, Right? If I don't do that, then I'm going to take you out. Right? Well, what, what would I be demonstrating with my actions that actually Meredith is not nearly as important to me as I say that she is? Here's the thing. We all know that is an unacceptable way for me to treat my wife. Why do we think it's an acceptable way to treat God? We all know that's an unacceptable way for me to treat my wife. You're like, man, you're a jerk. Why do we think that God is any different? Why do we think that God is pleased with us when we chip in our last and our leftovers when we can? Friends, when we give God our first fruits, when we give God our first and our best, it is one loud declaration that God is glorious and that God is wonderful and that we love him and that he is a priority in our lives. But when we give him our, our last and our leftovers, it's a declaration that he's not. It's a declaration that he's way far down on our priority list. So let me just ask you practically, what does your monthly budget say about the priority of God in your life? What does your monthly budget say about the priority of God in your life? Jesus said that your heart will follow your treasure. Your heart will follow your treasure. So if you want to grow in your love for God, if you want to treasure him more, one of the most practical things you can do is start prioritizing him in your monthly budget, is to start practicing first fruits, just like God called his people to in the Old Testament. So maybe you say, Josh, this is the first time I've ever heard of first fruits, but I want to use this tool. I want to use this gift from God. How do I do it? Well, let me give you a, answer a couple of questions that I often hear. Number one, um, who should I give my first fruits to? The simple answer is you should give it to your local church. God commanded the Israelites to bring their first fruits to the priest because the priest was his appointed instrument in society. Well, as New Testament Christians, we don't have priests in a temple, we have pastors in local churches. And so you should give your first fruits to whoever your local church is. That doesn't have to be this church. 
right? But if you consider this your home church, you should give your first fruits to this church. If, if you're like, no, that feels self-serving, Josh, that's fine. Go to a church that you can give it to because that is God's intended destination. Second, should my first fruits be before or after taxes? I'm trying to be real practical tonight, all right? Before or after taxes? Answer is they should be before taxes. They should be before taxes. The purpose of first fruits is to demonstrate that God gets your first and your best before anyone else. Israelites had taxes. In fact, the reason they rebelled against Solomon was because he made the taxes too high. They still had taxes, but the entire power of first fruits is saying, God gets my first, even before Uncle Sam gets his share. So they should be before taxes. Maybe you say, okay, well, how do I, how do I start giving my first fruits? I don't have a priest to go carry some grain to. Right? Well, the, the, the easiest way to do it at our church is to set up a recurring monthly gift. That's what my wife and I have done. So that at the, the beginning of the month, before anything else comes out, our gift to Center Church comes out. You know what that helps us do? It helps us not spend it. Because I don't know about you, but a lot of times I have a lot of intentions of being generous, and I end up spending it on frivolous things, like at Costco, right? It's just amazing. So easy way to do that, you go to centercville.com backslash give. You can set up a recurring payment. The truth is we automate things that are important to us. Like we come up with a schedule for the gym if it's important to us. We, ha we have a class schedule if we want to get a degree, right? We go to, to work at the same time every week, right? In the same way, if giving to the Lord is important to us, we will make it a priority. And then the last question people ask is, well, okay, how much should I give? And that gets into another topic that we're going to talk about tonight, which is the topic of tithing. Tithing is the second tool that God gives us to help us treasure him more and treasure this world less, First fruit speaks to when we give. Tithing speaks to how much we give. And the word tithe comes from the Hebrew and simply means a tenth, a tenth. So in the Bible, tithing refers to giving 10% of your income to God's appointed instrument in the world. Tithing means giving 10% of your income to God's appointed instrument in the world. In the Old Testament, that was the temple. For today, it's your local church. Now, there are a lot of questions out there about tithing, and probably the one that I get more often than any other is this. Is tithing in the Bible, or is it just something pastors made up to get money? Right? And no one says that second part to me directly, but I know what they're thinking, okay? And so let me just put my cards on the table. I believe convictionally that every Christian is called to tithe. I believed that before I became a pastor, and I believe that now. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I just want to show you in the Bible why, that, why I believe that is true, why that is true. Tithing starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 14 with a guy you've probably heard of named Abraham. We talked about him for 17 weeks. All right, here's the setting. Abraham had gone off to fight a coalition of kings to rescue his nephew named Lot. And in his victory, he had obtained a lot of spoil, right? So a lot of money and possessions and gold and silver and all these things. And so he's coming back to where he lives. And this is what he did next. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Ketulamar and the kings who were with him, Melchizedek, King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, Melchizedek. And he blessed him, Abraham, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So when Abraham got back, he gave a tenth of all of the spoil to Melchizedek. Why would he do that? That's a lot. Because Melchizedek was priest of God Most High. And Abraham, all the way back in Genesis chapter 14, understood the practice of tithing. So Abraham, the father of our faith, in the very, very beginning, the first person with a modern relationship with God, practiced tithing. The next time we find tithing explicitly mentioned in the scriptures is with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, in Genesis chapter 28. So here's the context. Jacob was a conniving, selfish person 
who had to leave his homeland because his brother hated him and wanted to kill him. Well, while he was uh, running away, God met him in a very dramatic way and began a personal relationship with Jacob. And in response, this is what Jacob did, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So in response to God's grace, Jacob promised to give a full tenth, a tithe to the Lord. And Old Testament scholar John Curid points out that that phrase, give a full tenth, denotes repeated action. So this wasn't a one-time practice of Jacob's, but it was a repeated lifetime practice. So we see that tithing goes all the way back to Genesis 14 and Genesis 28, and then it is picked up and codified in the law of Moses. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30 says this, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So not only do we find tithing explicitly, explicitly stated, but we find this emphasis that the tithe doesn't even belong to us, it belongs to God. That's actually his. And for one of us to hold it back from him, from one of his people in the Old Testament to hold it back from the Lord is the equivalent of spiritual grand larceny. You are stealing from God. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. And stealing is exactly what God accused the Israelites of doing when they stopped tithing in Malachi chapter three. Here's what it says. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me. The Israelites failed to practice tithing. They failed to use the tool that God gave them and God equated it with stealing. So clearly tithing was not an optional practice for God's people in the Old Testament. And it's important at this point to recognize that the Mosaic law did not establish the tithe, it simply codified it. The Mosaic law did not establish the law of the tithe. It simply codified it. Now, why is that important? Because there are some things from the Old Testament law that Christians are called to, to do and some things that they are not called to do, some things that, that we must abide by and some things that we don't have to abide by. So, for instance, in the Old Covenant, you weren't allowed to wear shirts made of two different kinds of fiber, okay? I would be in sin right now if that were still the case, okay? Like cotton and spandex going on in here, right? We, we're not, we, we, we don't have to, to, uh, obey that law. So how do we know if we, if we need to obey tithing? Well, that's, that's why you have to understand that tithing came before the law. Tithing was not established by the law. Tithing was simply codified with it. Most people who argue that tithing is not required of Christians today say, oh, that was just an Old Testament, Old Covenant law. And I would agree with that if it had been established by the law, but it wasn't. It preceded the law, and as we'll find out in a minute, was affirmed later by Jesus himself. Let's consider a, maybe a parallel example that's a little bit less touchy because you start talking about money and people get real defensive and they find all these theological reasons not to give money. Okay, so let's talk about a parallel example, the command to keep the Sabbath. Okay, the, the command to keep the Sabbath is once every seven days, God calls his people to set aside one day to rest, reflect, and to worship. And this was established way back in Genesis chapter two, verse three. It says this, so God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, which means he set it apart as different. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So similar to tithing, the command to keep the Sabbath predated the law, but then was codified by Moses in the law. Now, now that Christ has fulfilled the law, should Christians just reject the Sabbath? 
No, we shouldn't. We should practice the Sabbath. Why? Because it came before the law and is intended as a gift for God's people. We don't have to keep the Sabbath in the exact same way, but we're still called to keep it. Similarly, we don't have to tithe in the exact same way that the Israelites do. Please do not bring a bag of grain next week, okay? But we're still called to tithe. The question is, why? Why would God command his people to keep the Sabbath? Why would God command his people to tithe? Because he loves you, and he wants good for you. And keeping the Sabbath and tithing and any other commandment that God gives us is for our good, not for our harm. Look, if you're a parent, you understand how this works, right? You have rules for your kids because you want to protect them and you want good for them. You don't give them rules for their harm. I had a very practical example of this. Yesterday, my family went out to Maymount in Richmond. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's this beautiful 100-acre place you can walk around. And it was this awesome day, and we're walking around. We get down to the, the Japanese gardens, okay? And I'm like, man, this is so beautiful. There's this 100-year-old Japanese maple tree I'm looking at. It's like this very sublime fall moment, okay? And then out of the corner of my eye, I see my daughter running at full speed, yelling, James needs help. James needs help. And I'm like, oh, goodness, okay? So, like, I, like, you know, quit my moment. I, like, run over here. And my my son has somehow managed to discover a, like a real live modern day quicksand pit, okay? Like he had discovered this field of mud and had somehow fallen into it, like up to his knee. And I get over there and this woman is like pulling him out of the mud and the poor boy lost his shoe in the mud pit. Like I was in there like digging in the mud pit trying to find it. It's gone. Like that thing is eaten up. And so we were a mile from the parking lot. So James like walked a mile back to the parking lot, like mud up to his knee with one shoe on, you know, and I'm feeling like the dad of the year at this point. Okay. So, so I was talking to James like as it happened and, and I was like, James, man, you know, like I encourage you to, to really be aware of your surroundings. And he was like, yeah. I was like, how do you feel like you did with that today? He was like, I don't think I did very well, dad. <laughs> you know? Right? Why did I want him to be aware of his surroundings? I didn't want him to get sucked into quicksand, right? Like, I didn't want it for his harm. I wanted it for his good. In the same way, God doesn't call his people to do anything for their harm. God calls us to do things for our good. Some of you have found that with keeping the Sabbath, haven't you? When you keep the Sabbath, it goes well with you. When you don't keep the Sabbath, it does not go well with you. Well, the same is true of tithing. God doesn't call us to tithe because he's mad at us. God calls us to tithe because it's a gift, it's a way to help us start practically treasuring him. And it's a way to stem the flood of materialism that we live in every single day. Which is the reason that Jesus himself affirmed tithing in Matthew chapter 33 or 23. Here's the context. Jesus was teaching his disciples. And he's saying, hey, don't be like the religious leaders who only keep some parts of the law, but not other parts. And Jesus said this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These tithing you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So did Jesus say to the scribes and Pharisees, hey, you should stop tithing and you should start caring about justice and mercy and faithfulness? No, he said you should do both. You should continue tithing while also caring about justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus himself affirmed the practice of tithing. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Where does much injustice in the world come from? Greed and materialism, right? Greed and materialism probably motivates more acts of injustice than anything else around the world. So what Jesus is saying is, hey, keep tithing because tithing will help break you free from greed and materialism that will lead you to injustice. 
So in a very counterintuitive way, one of the most practical things you can do to work against injustice in the world is free yourself from the love of money and possessions. And that is what tithing helps you do. So in summary, tithing preceded the law, okay? It's been around for a very long time. It's always been part of God's people's practice. It was codified by Moses in the law, and it was affirmed by Jesus. Tithing is God's starting point for generosity. It is his good gift to his people to help us treasure him and to help us treasure this world less. So the question, of course, that presses upon us is, are you tithing? Are you tithing? Are you using the good gift that God has given you to treasure him more and to treasure this world less? And the answer for some of you is yes. Praise God for that. And you've experienced some of the blessing that comes from doing things the way God calls you to do them. But if the stats are true, 80% of you, the answer is no. Because 80% of people in churches in America don't tithe. I like to think we do better than the average church, but that's a long shot, okay? So that means many of us in this room are not using the good gift of tithing that God has given us. And if you're one of those people, I figure that it's probably for one of three reasons. There might be more, but this is kind of what I came up with. Number one, it might be that this is the first time you've ever heard of tithing, right? You, you didn't know about it, so you haven't been doing it, right? There's no shame in that. You now know what God's word says about tithing. You know why he's given it to you as a gift, and I'd encourage you to start using it, to start obeying God's commandment. Number two, you don't think tithing is required of Christians. You di I disagree with you. I think you're wrong, but I respect you. I respect your position. There are some reputable theologians that fall in that camp. But here's what I'll say. If you don't believe tithing is required of Christians, it's because you believe that Christians are underneath a better covenant, a covenant of grace that God himself gave up his one and only son so that you could be forgiven and you don't have to fear keeping the law. Shouldn't that make you more generous, not less generous than the Old Testament people of God? Shouldn't that make you above and beyond a tithe, 15, 20, 25%? If you look at the New Testament example, that is what you see. You don't see anybody arguing over tithing. You see people selling their houses and giving to the poor. So my question to you would be, okay, if you don't think Christians are required to tithe, are you giving far and beyond the tithe? Because that would be the reasonable expectation. If the answer is no, then I have my doubts. What I think is maybe going on is you don't want to tithe and you found sort of a sneaky theological way to make yourself think you don't need to tithe. And I hate to be that frank about it, but I just don't know what other conclusion to draw. Either Either you believe him under a new covenant of grace, God has been so gracious to me, so I want to be gracious and generous to others, and that would result in giving, or there might be something else going on. Here's number three. You know about tithing, but you just aren't doing it. You don't disagree with it theologically, right? You, you believe it's in the scriptures. You believe you should be tithing. You just aren't. It might be because you're in debt. It might be because you're afraid. Right? It might be because you just don't want to. And if you're in that group, I, I want to clearly and pastorally just warn you, you are stealing from God. And though, I mean, that, I know that's direct. Those are my words. Those are the words of Malachi. You are stealing from God something that doesn't belong to you. But what God challenges you to do is test him in this. I mean, this is what God said to the people of Israel in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. He said this, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse and thereby put me to the test. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. 
My encouragement to you would be to do a tithing challenge. Commit to giving 10% of your income, your first and your best, to the Lord over the next 90 days. December, January, February. Put God to the test and see if he won't provide for your needs. I'm not saying you're going to win the lottery. You will not, in fact, you will not win the lottery. But I'm confident you're going to see God provide for you in some pretty encouraging ways. And after 90 days, you're probably going to look back and say, that was not nearly as scary as I thought it was. Unfortunately, the majority of Christians in America are not using either of these tools. They're not practicing first fruits and they're not practicing tithing. And it's no wonder that the American church is one of the most materialistic churches in the world. We could be making such a larger difference than we are. But we're handicapped by our love of stuff. But if you're here tonight and you're not practicing first fruits, if you're not practicing tithing, I don't think it's because you're like really stingy and greedy. I really don't think that's why. I think probably at the bottom of it is you're afraid. I know at least for me, when I'm not generous, it's because of fear. That you aren't practicing first fruits, you aren't practicing tithing because you're afraid that if you do, you won't have enough. You're convinced that your financial situation is unique and different and it won't work with you. And if you do this, if you live this way, then you're going to be left in the lurch and you're not going to have enough and you're not going to be able to do the things that you want to do. Friends, underneath of all of our generosity issues is, tr is a trust issue. It's an issue of do we trust the Lord to provide for us or do we trust in ourselves? The truth is we don't have to be afraid because the God who calls you to give is the same God who gave to you. What did God give? He gave his first fruits. Face it, you have been a bad steward of your life. God has given you time and talent and treasure and you've wasted most of it and spent the rest of it on yourself. You've done that, I've done that. We have stolen from God. We have been bad stewards of his resources and what we deserve is to be cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God would be utterly justified in treating us that way. That's how you would treat somebody that used your resources the way that you have used God's resources. And yet, what did God do? He gave his first and his best for you. He sent his first. He sent his best. And he sent his only son to the world to live the life that you and I should have lived and then to die the death that you and I deserve to die. Jesus was treated like a cheat so that you could be treated like a faithful steward. Jesus was cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth so that you could be brought into the very presence of the Father. And you can receive forgiveness of all of your sins, all of your money sins, all of your other sins through simple repentance and faith. Friend, that is the greatest act of generosity in history. Tithing and first fruits are a matter of trust. They're a matter of trust. If you don't trust Christ, that is the place to start. Not with your money, but with your soul. Trust him as your savior. But if you do trust Christ, 
If you trust Christ with your eternity, why not trust him with your money too? That is my prayer for us in this season, that we would increasingly trust Christ, not just with our eternity, but with our tomorrow. And as a result, would make a difference for his name in this world. Do you pray with me? Father, thank you for being generous to us. Thank you that, Lord, when I was a bad steward of my life, you did not cast me out, but you cast out your son in my place. Lord, I just pray that that radical gift of generosity, the radical generosity of the gospel would change us. And it would make us a generous people, a people that trust you, that give you our first and our best, that devote our resources to you and your kingdom, and that do so in bold faith, not shirking back in fear, not trying to hedge all of our bets and provide for ourselves, but trusting that you are good and that you are able. So God, let faith rise in this place. Make us a different kind of people. We love you. Amen. Response to the goodness of God. Would you stand and sing with us?